0: welcome to the Philip K Dick book club in each episode of this podcast, I look at one of the works of Philip K. Dick in chronological order of publication. In this episode, I'll be looking at Dick's 1957 story, Misadjustment. Now, Misadjustment is a bit of a throwback for Philip Dick. It's really part of a series of stories he wrote about post-humanism. And it kind of goes back to a theme he explored in stories like The Golden Man and World of Talent and the crawlers and and those stories that really try to see the post-human as a threat to human existence in some way. And then they see the creation of a, of a, some kind of surveillance state or government entity or agency that's set out to kind of track down and eradicate and eliminate these post-humans from, from human society because of the threat they they pose. But the threat in this case is quite interesting. It's, actually, this story has a lot in common with the world she wanted or small town or this these stories because it, the main plot is about a psychic ability called parakinesis that allows people to to manipulate reality based on their subjectivity and then impose it on others actually in a sense it's it's a macro version of of eye in the sky eye in the sky you had eight people all of seven of who would be subjected to the delusional views of reality of one of them. In Misadjustment, the parakinesics, the parakinetic people, are able to take their private delusion and project it over the whole world and others. So he's playing with a lot of different themes he already explored in other works. So the work's not fully original, but he kind of throws them together and... It's it's a nice entry into his series of post-human stories. And this story then gets really wild when you realize that each of these people with this ability can kind of create in real life their delusions, and then you have enough people doing it. You just have all this weird, bizarre stuff going on, and you really end up in, in a sort of a dream world. So Misadjustment was published in Science Fiction Quarterly in February of 1957. It's one of only two stories dick published in 1957 but keep in mind he did publish two novels that year as well and this is really when his short story production begins to taper off he'll come back to short stories in the in the mid-60s but he, he you know he'll still publish a few but there tended to be stuff he wrote earlier and you know that that finally got into print um, but you know and he really starts moving to novels so it's it this really fits more in the long uh, train of stories we've been looking at, you know, from the stuff he published in 53 and 54 and even 1955. But if you care about publication date, 1957 for this one. And it's now included in the volume of his stories called the third volume of his collective stories, second variety and other classic stories by Philip K. Dick. I don't know if it's published in any other anthologies. It's a relatively short story. It's only about 15 pages. Um So anyways, the plot of the story, well, it's really centers around a man named Egerton. But we start with uh, just a brief vignette of a man named Richards who comes home from a 10-hour shift at his job at the Commerce Institute. And he starts to do what many people do after work, which is work on their garden. And he is growing a high-velocity transport in his garden. It's almost ripe and soon can be used to fly around. So we start with a really bizarre reality that this guy is growing technologies now dicks done this before he's got a whole idea of of a kind of a replication technology in which a biological entity can replicate itself into any consumer good or anything people want and that sometimes gets used for mass production especially in now wait for last year and then you have the to pay for the printer in which you have a biological entity that can produce material objects so um, it's it's not that odd for Philip K. Dick to imagine growing a ship but it, in this story, it really is presented as, a, as an oddity, as a, as a bizarre part of the reality. So after this little vignette, we move on to the story, which is centered around this man, Mr. Egerton, And we're, we start in his waiting room. And it's almost empty. There's only one woman left in his waiting room. It's 3.30. It's towards the end of the day. Now, the desk is an automated technology. The desk warns this woman that Mr. Egerton will not be able to see her anymore tonight but she insists that he will see her. Then Mr. Egerton finally approaches her and tells her that he's not interested in buying anything and that he is not hiring. He notices a car in her, in her hand and he runs off. The desk scolds her for not informing him she was in, in, in immune when she had filled out the standard card. In fact, what she was doing is she was delivering a summons report to Egerton, which is why she was willing to wait all day. She's about to make preparations to publicize the notice. So a couple small things in this story. First is you have this concept of immune. And so we need to know what that is. And then we realize that Egerton is being chased and being followed and, and by some kind of government agency. At least someone with a card is chasing them. And then she's going to publicize her, her notice, just basically this call to arms to, to track down this guy, Egerton, who's, who's going to be deemed a threat. So then we shift points of view really to this woman. We learn that her name is Doris and she comments that to herself that Egerton does not look like the typical parakineticist. Um, Most of them are in hiding. Most don't have public jobs and are out out in public as much as that. Usually they're, they're just kind of underground because they're being hunted. Doris's husband, Harvey tells her that she should just relax and just be happy. She has another mutant to chase because it sounds like that the, Population of these mutants is is being drained a little bit, and there there are not as many for her to to find anymore. And then he simply says, don't worry, it'll be an easy case for you. Egerton is really well known, the bounty is substantial enough, so eventually someone will, will rat on him and inform on him. Doris, however, thinks it's more complicated because there's some fundamental categories, I guess, of people she's chasing in her career. One group, and I guess the most straightforward are just mutants who know they're mutants who, who hide. But then there are people who don't know they have the mutant ability that are just delusional. They think this is normal. I guess they, they, they don't realize that there's something doing something special, right? Like, um, I mean, this idea that we, we, how our internal monologue looks, we assume that's normal, right? This is something that came up a little bit in eye in the sky, that novel is where people do live in these delusional realities but they just think it's normal and, and there's no reason for them to believe they're odd, right? So people, a lot of people who are seeing the world in a distorted way don't realize they're seeing it in a distorted way, right? And I, I guess this is what we could say about perhaps the Nazis in 1930 who had this vision of the world of being controlled by the Jews which was, of course, deluded but you know for them it was completely natural and, and it would be bizarre for anyone not to think that way. So that group is kind of complicated because they're harder to spot and harder to identify. And then there's a group that's more interesting that falsely believe they have this ability, right, who walk around thinking that they're parakineticists. Now, we don't yet get the definition of what parakineticists are, but I've already sort of talked about it in my intro. These are people who, whose delusional view of reality gets projected on other people. Right. So some people just think this is what whatever they project in the world is normal. And then there's people who are normal, don't have this ability, but still believe they're projecting their view, their views of the world on others. So it's a very clever thing Dick is doing here with, I think, very grounded and real life psychological phenomenons and and how we kind of interact in the world. So. Harvey then, after this conversation, Harvey tells Doris that they're invited to a garden party hosted by his associate, Jay Richards. And the Jay Richards is the guy we met who's planting the the high-velocity transport at the beginning of the story. So we're back to Egerton. Egerton's flying around looking for a safe place. Bear in mind, he's flying. He thinks he's got about a one-day grace period before the bounty would make his freedom difficult to maintain. He thinks about the reason why he resisted the summons, right? Because what is involved? What's involved in going there? Well, it's a mind probe, right? And he thought maybe he could beat the machine. Maybe he could prove that he's not a parakineticist. Egerton, though, has an opposition to those probes, these probes that are more principled. Now, it, it seems Egerton does not believe he's a parakineticist. That's why he's actually on some level willing to go. He says, it's, it's not that I'm afraid of getting caught. I just don't want, I, I'm against these mind probes. He goes to a place called the Id. Block Hall, I guess, um, I'm not quite sure what that is, some kind of public uh, meeting place. And he thinks about airing his case before the like-minded leaders, but he knows the agency is too powerful and will eventually try to track him down. He hesitates, but then eventually does go to discuss the situation with other economic leaders in his community. Egerton tells them that they should help him and resist because they'll be next. They'll be the next ones to be tracked down by the agency. But one man reminds Egerton that it was these economic elites, these economic leaders, these, these, these elites who set up the agency in the first place to protect them from the parakinetics, kinetics. He reminds Egerton about why the PKs, the parakineticists, are so dangerous. And here's where we get the definition of what it is, this is. Not only do they have delusional views of reality, uh, which many of us have, all of us have, but because of their ability, they can make these delusions real. And if they're allowed to reproduce and expand without check, eventually there'll be no rules grounding objective reality. Right? Because every delusion, every bizarre idea will become something real in the world. And they said, the best thing for you to do is to surrender and follow the system and and they they bas- he basically gets the rousseauian concept of the social contract delivered to him that egerton should surrender to the general will because that's the best that's the price we pay for living in a functioning objectively real society is that the people who can disrupt that and distort it get dragged away so egerton finally locates doris at richard's garden party and enters the party uninvited he tells doris that he's ready to surrender and that it's still within the 24-hour window, so I guess that's within the rules. As they prepare to leave, Doris asks him why he didn't respond to the first summons, and Egerton was about to go into a talk about individual rights and, and liberties and you know illegal searches and all that, but that's when Richards begins to unveil his creation. When he does, most of the guests flee. His creation is what we met earlier on in the story, which is a plant that grows rocket ships. By revealing this creation, he's revealing himself as a PK, um, because this is this is something from a dream world, that you can grow fully functional rocket ships, at least in this world. Egerton kills him. He, Doris thanks him for stopping this dangerous PK from, from running amok. But this experience makes Egerton realize that they do not need the agency, which is run by a small population of immunes. Now, immunes are those who can somehow just make a differentiation between what is real and what is projected by the PKs. In this sense, they're sort of like the anti size in the story of the world of talent. Now, what Egerton realizes is that each person is capable of seeing the delusion from the real if they are vigilant, if they work hard, if they th- if they focus and concentrate and, and maintain a clear mind. But he also adds that each person will then become the standard by which reality is judged. Egerton muses about how delusional Richards must have been to want to grow rockets from plants in his backyard because flying is as easy as flapping your arms. And so the, it, it's one of these kind of jokey stories where the twist at the end is that yeah, Richards is, was the one who gets punished as a PK, and he apparently was, but Egerton was one all along, and his private delusion was human unaided flight. So anyways, here's what Egerton says after shooting Richards. You see, all these years, and he couldn't tell, but we could tell instantly. We can run our own society again. Consensus... We've had our measuring standard all the time, and none of us realized it. Individually, each of us is fallible, but as a group, we cannot go wrong. All we have to do is make sure the random check nets get everyone. We have to set up the process up, get more people later, and get them oftener. It has to be accelerated so that every person sooner or later gets hauled in. It came to me as soon as I saw Richard's plant. It was instantaneous. I had certain cert- a complete certitude. How could there be an error? A delusional system like his simply doesn't fit into our world. You understand there's no equation between a PK world and our ours. All we have to do is get the PK material up when we see it, where we can compare it to our own reality. So that's, that's kind of the solution to this problem. Not, instead of relying on a bureaucracy, a, a private agency that investigates these things, there is a space for a kind of a democratic, democratic projection of reality or a democratic defense of reality. All right. So of course, the story reveals at the end that Egerton is indeed a PK, and and here's the fault in his plan. It seems that no one has identified that human unaided flight is strange. Now he just said that it, you know there should be able, we should be able to measure this against an objective reality if we focus, if we are vigilant, and we we kind of have faith in the collective. What do I want to say? Um, the collective insistence on objective truth but when you look back in the story you actually know that Egerton has been a PK all along or at least there's something strange about this world because he's actually flying from location to location now Dick wrote a story called uh what's what was it called I think the eyes have it let me see if I can remember yeah that's what it's called the eyes have it and and there Dick plays with how things that are metaphoric and are in mainstream literature, I guess Said in our world, in a science fiction world Become less metaphoric, right? Or they, they seem to make more sense So, or at least it can be taken literally For instance, um, he, he yelled his head off Right, and if we read that in mainstream fiction We just think he's yelling really loudly But in a science fiction story, you don't know now Maybe it's possible to yell one's head off In, in the future, so he, he does that. In, in a way, it, it works that way with flying here, right? You say he flew somewhere, but he, without a context, without an image. You can imagine that as he's getting his little you know, little rocket ship or something and flying to a location, or he's waving his arms. It's not until the end of the story that you realize that by flying, Egerton really meant f- waving your arms and flying. So this obviously is another mutant story. Sustaining the theme that mutants will be a threat to human existence. In this case, their delusion has become manifest in reality and that's the threat they pose. Once enough such delusions are real, it'll be impossible for anyone to judge what is true and what is false. And I think Dick's point at the end of the story is despite Egerton's insistence that they can solve this problem as a community, as a democracy, the cat's really out of the bag and there's too many delusions out there and yeah, you might be able to get some some of these delusions and identify them and, and root them out. But there's so many in the world now that it's, it's everywhere. So we have all these radical subjectivities coexisting, which is kind of a cool idea. I mean, that could be a utopia, right? So many utopian stories are, are flawed. And this is something Dick plays with also an eye in the sky. The flaws in utopias is it's always a projection of, a, of an opinion of what is perfect for some people. On, onto the onto the reality of others. But if we can have a utopia where everyone's subjectivity is fully realized and actualized, then we might be onto something. I guess you know, in the comic book Transmetropolitan, there's a it's all set in this massive city, right? But they have um, reservations hidden away. and these are reservations of, of particular cultures and particular periods of time that are perfectly preserved in fact the people that live in those have no idea that the outside world exists people who visit have to go through all these procedures to to uh, you know to make sure they don't contaminate that world and you know these ancient cultures are sustained in all the brutality so there's actually like a mayan world where people live as the ancient mayans did and actually do human sacrifices and and this is deemed ideal to preserve these cultures but, you know, of course, they're completely detached from the progress of, of our society, but that, that we've achieved the enlightenment or whatever. But there's, there's something for everyone. That's the point, right? Whatever kind of weird belief you have it exists somewhere. So it sounds like Dick is exploring a tension between kind of a homogeneous state and the people, which would be much more amorphous and more difficult to control and diverse. And, you know, Egerton says the democracy can be the means by which we assert reality. But it seems that's not true. It's, it seems democracy is a means you're going to get these radically different subjectivities and they're going to be competing. The people actually do embrace a variety of subcultures and ways of life. Now, as Dick realized very early in his career, modern states actually have a hard time understanding or accepting cultures that are different in fundamental ways from the norm that's been imposed on society through, through mass education. And for more open-minded people, like maybe in Dick's time, we could be talking about the Beats or something, the idea that each person can make their delusions manifest in reality poses difficult questions, but might create a more interesting society, right? Where, And, and certainly throughout the 50s and 60s, you have people exploring in subcultures in conscious direct opposition to to mass society mainstream society. You know, there were books like The Organizational Man and One-Dimensional Man that made this case that kind of modern capitalism bureaucratic capitalism makes everyone the same and it kind of enforces conformity across everyone and you know television does this too. And so some people responded by really radically different subcultures and ways of life and and this of course manifests into things like the hippies and you know swingers and you know all kinds of other Groups. Identity politics. Now the agency, we can talk about the agency for a bit. This is made up of immunes. They're all women. And these are people who are unique because they can see past delusions. So they're the guards. They're the ones who can go around, root out the PKs, and, and kind of clean up society to make sure the objective reality is maintained, conformity, to make sure conformity survives it's originally founded by the social elites as a way of protecting their way of life because they saw the subcultures, the, the PKs as a threat to their existence. You know, what the however is to prevent the PK from imagining a classless society? I, I think that's maybe part of their fear, right? You know, what's what's better for a communist PK to do than to just say, okay, we're going to have communism, right? It seems they have the ability to do that. Once imagined, it can be made real, and nothing, of course, is more frightening to the ruling class than the idea that an alternative exists. But you know, for me, this is kind of empowering. Right, set aside the mutant stuff. We have here a belief that the world itself is ours to recreate. The worlds we live under are not necessarily objective reality, and we're free to dream and make those dreams real. And maybe this is the message of the tale. And I don't quite know which side to go down on it. One is, is there something valuable about an agreed upon reality? Is that just an agreed upon delusion? Or should we play with the utopias? And, and should we really push for the utopias? And I, I think there might be a, you know, depending on how you read the story, you may come one way or another on this. Certainly, if we accept the PKs as a real problem and decide to sympathize with those who want to maintain an unchanging objective reality, Egerton's solution to the problem of the PKs at the end is still pretty compelling. It presents a non-state-centered solution to social disorder. The original idea was to form an agency, but at the end of the story, Egerton realizes that collective self-defense and cooperative, collective cooperation is a better method than oppressive institutional controls. But whether we kind of embrace Egerton's idea that we kind of have to have the collective self-defense asserting reality, or the more radical perhaps view that let's allow the utopian delusions to go there, what's the big deal? So we have rocket ships growing out of gardens. It's, it's not the worst thing we can imagine, right? Allows us to go to the moon whenever we want. And I think there's this is a really interesting story for me because political... It, it allows it's appraising political imagination, I think, or at least it appraises in general imagination. And I, I when I talked about Eye in the Sky, I lamented that Dick didn't have space to give us the child's view of, of reality, the, the child's world. You know, the characters didn't have time to, to work through the child's world. That would, have, I think, really been great. And I think one reason it's great is because children have a greater capacity to imagine. And their imaginations aren't always disciplined and and rational but I think that's the benefit of it and this is something Stephen King plays with a lot in it um, and it's kind of what I really would have I really think I and this guy could have been improved by just throwing in how do children see the world I wonder if dick or tried to experiment with this at all when he was writing that novel but anyways that's misadjustment an interesting story of 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 Mutants an interesting story about kind of political diversity and and cultural diversity and and the benefits and and downsides of allowing people to cultivate their various delusions and and subcultures and and weird political ideas you know the imagery we have at the beginning of the story is a garden and I'm kind of on the side of of let's cultivate the garden of, of diverse ideas and and experiment a little bit. So uh, that does it in my next. So this, this, this ends my little short series on 1957. So we had two stories and two novels. Um, Dick only published one thing in 1958, a story called Noel. And I'll look at that in the next episode. So thank you so much for listening. If you have your own comments, uh, please, please leave them below. You can also write me at hundredpagescast at gmail.com. Please subscribe to this podcast so you'll get more of my content about Philip K. Dick as well as American writers who I'm who I'm who I'm reviewing. So again, thanks for thanks for listening.